Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. With us today is Drew Brown, IT Security Manager at the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Drew and I are here to talk about FAIR and his real-world usage of it and testing it in the trenches. Drew, thanks so much for joining us here at the ranch. Hey, thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here. First, a brief word from our sponsor. You're in charge of cybersecurity at your company, but do you really know what's going on with your security controls? Are they actually working to keep you safe? The problem is when controls fail, they fail silently. That's why you need Attack IQ, the automated insights platform to continually validate your defenses. Better insights, better decisions, real security outcomes. That's Attack IQ. Check it out at attackiq.com. And thank you, Attack IQ, for sponsoring this show. So let's get started with a little bit about your background. Why don't you tell us how you got into cyber and a little bit about your cyber career and your, your cyber day job. Sort of tell us the tale of how you got to where you are. So I spent 15 years doing IT stuff, everything from breaking and fixing printers and desktops and doing telecom and, and all of that. And I applied for a job in cyber against a guy who already had a CISSP. And I thought, I'm never going to get this. And I didn't. But then he moved on to greener things and they opened up the door and said, why don't you come back? So I did. And that opened the door then for me to be the CISO from one of the state agencies. And I've been doing this now for a while. So now my title says IT security manager, but I'm essentially a CISO from that state agency that has something to do with law enforcement. I'll leave it at that. I'm responsible for communicating security and risks and working with the business and the business development people and IT staff to make sure that what we implement is secure, it's compliant, and it meets all of the business objectives. So with an undisclosed specific agency, a CISO-like role, (laughs) got here through shady means through the back door. And here you are with your modern career. So let's talk a little bit briefly then about FAIR. Let's start with, first of all, it's capital F-A-I-R. What does that stand for and what does it do? It is Factor Analysis of Information Risk, and it's a quantitative risk model. So if you look at like COSO or ISO 27001 or even NIST standards around risk management, they'll say you should do risk management. You should do quantitative risk management. They never tell you how. And so FAIR is a model that goes through and it allows you to do the how. It allows you to go from point A to point B. It's a model that describes the required elements for measuring risk. How does it work? Give us a quick overview of of what it's actually doing when it walks you through that risk measurement. So you start asking some very basic questions. What is the asset? What's the thing of value that you're trying to protect? And once you understand what that is, then you can kind of say, okay, I know who's going to come after that asset, or at least I have a pretty good idea who might be interested in that asset, whether it's cyber criminals, nation state, you know, some kind of industrial espionage or or whatever that is, or maybe it's just hacktivists. Maybe it's the guy sitting in his underwear in his parents' basement, still a threat, or maybe it's Doris in accounting. Either way, you, you start to work through who might come after that information. So we know what they're coming after. We know who's coming after it. How might they get after it? That's the third question we would ask. How would they get after it? Maybe it's a phishing email. Maybe it's a DDoS. Maybe it's some other kind of attack, known attack vector. And then we want to look at what's the impact if they actually come after that? Are they going to be interested in compromising the confidentiality or the integrity or the availability of the data? Because it's three different questions if you think about it, right? And when you read the NIST publications, they're very concerned about confidentiality, integrity, and availability. But 
the data, the confidentiality of data is different from the integrity of the data. And that's different from the availability of the data. So we start asking those questions and that helps us scope the risk problem or the risk scenario that we're looking at. And once we have a well-defined risk statement, now it's much easier to go through and say, what's the probability of that actually happening? And if it did happen, what's the magnitude? What's the impact if that does happen? And we can put plug in real dollar amounts. So now we can have that conversation with an executive to say, this is what your risk actually is. Okay, so breaking that down versus the classic likelihood and impact, you know, five by five grid model. And I just, yeah. you know, wanted to get into this a little more. Fair is specifically saying not just likelihood and impact. For likelihood, they're actually breaking it down by the who, the how, the why, and the what. Yeah. Right. And then, and then for the impact, we we still haven't really gotten into what fair is doing that's different there. You're saying we can plug in dollar values. I'm assuming we'll go through some details as yeah. we progress in our conversation here with fair about that. But what you know, at a high level overview, what is fair doing? It sounds like the five by five grid for the likelihood is being addressed at, with a much more granular level. I assume it's the same story on the money side. It is. We'll touch on the probability side as well, because the probability of that guy sitting in his underwear in his parents' basement ordering pizzas on your credit card is a different probability than nation state. Because you look at your threat actors on a continuum of how good are they? And so if we start looking at our controls and how good are our controls, and so that helps shape that probability piece. On the impact side, we look at six different categories of risk. There's loss to productivity. There's losses in terms of response. How much money are we gonna spend or do we have to spend to resolve that loss event, that incident? That's your IR plan, your incident response plan. And then replacement. So maybe you have a cybersecurity event or you have a risk scenario because Joe lost their cell phone in a parking lot, right? Well, you got to replace that. Those are all loss scenarios, primary loss. And then the secondary loss. There's things that maybe we don't think about and they're kind of soft in a way. They're a little harder to define, but you can define them, or at least you can get into a range for that. And it's competitive advantage. So What if you had trade secrets that are compromised or intellectual property? Or what's the market value because another competitor was able to move in and take market share while you're recovering from this loss event? Now, on the government side, we get a lot from fines and judgments. If we have a data compromise, there's a pretty good chance that a federal entity, one of them, various three-letter federal entities are going to come after us and say, you need to pay this much money because you weren't doing due diligence to secure your systems. There's also the chance that the citizens or your customers could sue your organization. So you get fines and judgments for that. The last one is reputation. This one's kind of tricky, but especially in this day and age with with governments, there's a kind of an eye-opening experience where governments who used to say, we don't have to worry about reputation because it's not like Alan and Drew are going to go start a government entity or compete with a government entity. But now they are concerned with losses from negative perceptions from constituents. And in the private sector, maybe it's shareholders. But yeah, those are the six forms of loss. Productivity response, replacement, fines and judgments, competitive advantage, and reputation. And so we start looking at what those dollar amounts actually are. And now I can start plugging numbers in. I can give a range to that executive to say, if this happens, your loss could be, let's say, $100,000. And maybe that's a drop in a bucket and they don't think about it. Or maybe it's $1.3 trillion. And then we start looking at the probability. Less than 10% probability, maybe nothing happens. Or more than 90%, it's probably not going to happen, right? But we want to concern ourselves 
with the most likely? And what's the loss magnitude at that most likely value? Now I can go to that executive and say, okay, do you want to build a new parking lot or do you want to resolve this risk? And we can have a business conversation about it. We're going to talk about that probability piece here. I got a couple of questions for you down the road here, but I wanted to ask, first of all, before we kind of dive in a little deeper into what FAIR is and how it works and, you know, deconstruct it a little bit, if you will, is yeah. what drove you to FAIR? What yes. was not working for you? Like, like clearly something was not working and you saw this model and went, I'm going to embrace this model or I'm going to at yeah. least try it out. And, and based on conversations I've had with you in the past, I know you've embraced it, but what led you to it in the first place? What was not working? Was it the inaccuracy of the five by five grid? Like what, what, what drove you to FAIR? Like I said, it was a newly minted CISO for a state agency, and I was going to resolve these audit findings that we had from several federal entities and our own state auditors. And one of the reoccurring themes was we didn't have a risk management program to speak of. So I thought, all right, I can write a policy and we can come up with some procedures, but they're going to be shelfware in three years. But I could have it, you know, and that would meet audit compliance. And whether we do it or not is different. And so, yeah, I could check the box. And so I'm like, all right, well, let's check the box. Let's at least start that. So that started me down this process of looking at what does NIST have to say? What are the CIS controls? Because they've got a risk management framework. It's pretty good. I started looking at some other things that were out there. I liked the CIS for its simplicity because they gave me a spreadsheet. What I didn't like was this numeric value that they would add. And NIST did the same thing. If it's a low, medium, or high, well, what is that? Or let's put an ordinal scale to it, and it's one to five. What's the difference between a three and a four? And is the difference from a two and a three the same scale as a three and a four? And so I just got frustrated, really frustrated. I was like, I don't know where to put these numbers. I don't know what to do with this. I can put this in practice only so far. And then I got introduced to FAIR, and I'm looking at that, and I'm like, wow, this looks like a really good thing to do, but we're not mature enough to use FAIR yet. So I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to go to the Faircon conference. I was drinking the Kool-Aid. I went to the Faircon conference and um, I thought like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try and shoot holes in this. I'm going to try and figure out how this works, why all these people are so embracing this. And I went to different people, both public sector, private sector, practitioners at different levels and how far they've gone with it. And I said, here's where I'm at. I'm looking at CIS controls. I'm looking at NIST risk management framework. And then I'm thinking I'm going to drop one of those and then bolt fair on top of it. And they're like, no, no, do fair now, because otherwise you'll end up reinventing the wheel. And these are different conversations. It's not like I would ask a group. I was asking one person and it almost the exact same response every time. So I started digging deeper into fair. How do we actually do this? How do we make this work? And one of the biggest arguments against fair that I always hear is, and I was, I'm in this, I was in this camp for a long time myself. We don't have enough data points to do this. Now, if I worked for like a national insurance company and I had actuarial tables and had access to that, I might be able to get bits and pieces of it, but we don't have actuarial tables for DDoS attacks. We don't have actuarial tables for phishing, right? So that's where I started looking at the, the fair book to say, okay, what do they say? Digging into that, that helped me not only work on resolving those audit findings, but I started to find things about I can make better decisions about risk by following this model. And that's the goal of FAIR anyway, is to make better business decisions, mm -hmm. better risk decisions. Has it done it then? Has FAIR improved your game? You, you saw these challenges. You, you embraced FAIR. You're using FAIR. When you look back retrospectively, are you confident that it achieved the goals you set out to achieve with it? Absolutely. With FAIR, I'm now equipped first 
to speak in business language. Like I can talk about risk instead of red, yellow, green, or low, moderate, high, which by the way, that means nothing to a C-suite executive. They they don't know what to do with that. Second, with FAIR, I can now show effective comparisons to various response options. I can have that real business conversation about prioritization instead of just saying, hey, we're going to hedge our bets and we're going to throw $100,000 at these six cybersecurity tools that might solve our problem. I can actually say these tools are going to be the most effective at mitigating these specific risks. So there's some specificity that comes to it, which is ironic given that it works with probability curves, right? Yeah. And confidence intervals or confidence, uh, there's another confidence term they use as well. But the whole idea that we're getting to this degree of precision and granularity we've never had before, that we can point to the heat maps, the red, yellow, green, we can point to the high, medium, low, we can point to the five by five likelihood impact, and we can say all these things are too vague, we need to be more specific. And yet FAIR's actual output is, to your point, probability curves yeah. and confidence. Yeah. And so how do you reconcile that? Like like you mentioned, heat maps not selling with the board. Well, how does a probability curve sell upstairs, <laughs> right? Walk, walk me through some of the physics there because, I, you know, I guess the first question is, how are we getting more accuracy if those are the terms we're speaking in is probability and, and confidence? And assuming that you get a good answer there that, yes, we, we are actually speaking of better accuracy, how are you selling that to the board? I'll retell a story that Jack Jones, one of the authors of the Fair Standard, tells. And, and I don't mind retelling it because I've been in that exact position. So he was a new C- CISO for Nationwide Insurance. And he walked into an executive meeting, executive board meeting, and they said, how much risk do we have? And he said, um, lots. And they said, okay, if we give you your budget to solve all these problems, how much will we have then? How much risk will we have then? And he said, um, less. And it's the heat map all over again, right? It's red, it's yellow, it's low, it's moderate. The difference is this, right? So with those probability curves, I now have, with the FAIR model, I should say, I have defensible information. I might be wrong, but you know, you're in cyber, we're in cyber, we got thick skin, I'm used to being told I'm wrong. I can still go to that board and say, all right, here's my probability. There's a probability that something bad could happen and the impact could be in this range. It might be nothing. It might be the maximum, but the question is, what do you, Mr. and Mrs. business owner or risk owner, what do you want to do with that? So if I'm having that conversation on probability, you know, I'm I'm still going to go to that subject matter expert and say, is that real? In fair, we call it calibrating the range. So a good example is this. What year was, without looking it up, don't Google it. What year was George Washington, the first president of the United States? What year was he born? You're thinking about it, right? So the absurd, we start with an absurd answer. Was it 1501? No. Was it 2001? No. So definitely not those. Let's narrow it down. Was it in the 1800s? No. Was it in the 1600s? No, because he was at least 40 years old when he became president. So we know it's somewhere probably in the 1700s, and we're just narrowing that range down using logic and deduction. So Mm -hmm. I can figure out that if he was 40 years old and he was the first general of the American army, and he'd fought in a previous war, I can probably work that back to sometime in the early 1700s, maybe 1720. And okay, that gives me a pretty good range that's pretty defensible. The same thing then on the magnitude side, it's less about range, but I can say, okay, I know it costs this much time to do something, or it's going to take this much time to perform some kind of remedial action. And I know the skill set and the pay grade of the people that are going to do it. So now I've got a range of pay. 
I know how much a system is going to cost. On the government side, we know how much we're going to get charged for those fines and judgments. Yeah, I know exactly how much they're going to charge us for each record. And so now I can start plugging in actual dollar amounts, go to that executive and say, there's this probability and here's my rationale for how I got there. Now, I've actually been in the circumstance where I did that and a subject matter expert and one of the executives said, you can't say that because this and this. Okay, show me where I'm wrong. Let me redo the calculation. I can redo the calculation, run it through the tool. And the really cool thing is it didn't really change the response that much. But they felt good because they now had some skin in the game and they got to, you know, say, hey, oh, yeah, you forgot this one little point. True. I did. So things are defensible because I can show the rationale for how I got to that point. So Rich Syerson's been on my show. He's a buddy of mine. And he pointed out, and I thought this was very interesting. It was a generalized statement that I didn't get the chance in that show to drill into the detail with him. But when I brought up the same challenge of how are you selling probability curves upstairs, he said ambiguity is the currency of the board. That already things like sales forecasting is already ambiguous and and probabilistic, right? And so it's not too weird actually to be bringing probability to a board or to the C-suite if they're already used to seeing these realms of possibility and things like sales forecasting. And I thought that was a very astute observation. It it helps smooth over the paradigm of it, but the actual mechanics of it and the details of it that you just presented, I needed needed that story too. I'm still—it's funny— I've been dabbling and considering fair for so long now. I might as well just do it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> because I've I've already I've got the book, I've got the spreadsheets, I've got the open fair, I've downloaded the stuff. You know, you've come and talked even and just for the listeners, Drew is actually presented at my day job just as a free courtesy and a help to help kind of educate us on fair. It's probably time for me to embrace it. I'm not a fair head, but I'm sure <laughs> hanging out with a lot of them these days it would seem. Come on in, the water's just fine. <laughs> <laughs> So it's improved your game. Yeah. It sounds like it really has. It sounds like the probability curve and confidence intervals and whatever else we've got that we can sort of overcome that. So put on your honest hat now. Okay. Where does fair fall short? What do you think is still missing? So the one thing that really needs to tune up is the controls analysis piece. If you look at, at fair, there's a taxonomy that they follow. You know, we start with any basic risk statement that says risk is some level of probability and some level of magnitude loss. That's a risk, right? And then they break that down in a a very granular style. But when you look at controls, they use a slightly different ontology for that. And I've done some research and study on that and actually had conversations with Jack Jones about that. I'm like, so what you're saying is this, and and actually there's some good news in this. That, That one area of weakness is something that he's been working on for several years on improving. And I can say this, he's doing a presentation at RSAC next week, I guess it is. Yeah. About modifications to the fair standard for control analysis. So I was like, man, primo, we need it. So because you can do it. um, It's it's the same kind of idea as what you're doing. You're taking what you know, and you're doing an an essence, a confidence interval for the likelihood or the efficacy of a particular control. Mm-hmm. where it really gets kind of challenging is where you have multiple controls. Let's say your password policy, right? So you know that your password is of a certain length and a certain level of complexity and a certain duration. And do you have a lockout? And do you have other all of these other controls? Each one of those is an individual control, but how effective are they in mass? So that's one of the challenges, but you can do it, but it's much more effective with these changes that he's proposing. So the controls ontology 
you're not just looking at just prevention, detection, and response. It, it allows you to explicitly evaluate what is the relationship between the controls. Because you get have a control that's both a responsive and a detective control. So is that truly it? Is that all that's fair is missing? Or is there, is there anything more you wish it was doing better? I would say that's it because I've done a couple of those ontologies or those control analyses for, for different things. One, I was looking at the, what is the actual efficacy of a multi-factor authentication, mm-hmm. bearing in mind that, that not all MFAs are the same, but actually work through that. And I'm like, this is, at least from my perspective, as a cybersecurity practitioner, it was a good exercise to work through that. For our organization, we were having some conversations about, well, do we change certain controls? And then we started going through that process. Well, how effective are they? Is there going to be any measurable, meaningful change to our security level if we modify that security control? Or is there going to be a negligible effect and maybe we just get to help out the users and the customers so that they're not as frustrated at us because we have all these controls in place? It becomes a a high-level efficacy conversation. Yeah. Is exactly what that becomes. And that's, and, and that's um, you know, it taps into my day job, what I'm doing at my day job, <laughs> which is exactly that same sort of principle, of, you know, not at a control by control basis, but more of the, the broader strokes of the program itself. But, but at the end of the day, you may find you're spending a million dollars on these three things and you're getting 333,000 worth out of this one, 333,000 worth out of this one and nothing out of the other one at all. Right. And another 330000 that's going to this miscellaneous pile of things. And, you know, I mean, like you start to slice and dice your budget and you start to realize just because I have all the things doesn't mean all the things are pulling all the weight that I need. Right. And this ties into also there's a whole other sub-industry in security of the breach and attack simulation and this idea that you can purple team and BAS, you know, use BAS and, right. and challenge your control set that way. So anything that helps us improve the efficacy of our controls. I'm a huge proponent of purple teaming and BAS. I'm a huge proponent of obviously what I do at my day job. And, and very much here, I'm, I'm hearing that on a control-by-control control basis, FAIR is even looking to embrace that same paradigm of, it, it, was it worth the $5 here and the 5 there, or right. should you just put 10 here and none there? And this is, you say, this is getting announced at RSA, like, like literally, I guess, coming up here in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, yeah he's going to talk about that, the presentation. I don't know all the details of it yet because it's still very hush-hush, but he's right. going to uh, announce that, changes to it, and I'm, I'm excited to see what he's going to show because just reading through the book, I... And my understanding of that taxonomy, it's good. Like, I understand where he's going with it, but I'm hoping that these changes help answer the questions that I have lingering. Let's hope it does, man. Yeah. That would be really awesome to hear because I know, I know you're not just a fanboy. I know you're a critical <laughs> thinker. I try. Um, and, if you've, and if you've seen a problem here, that, then hopefully that is the problem being addressed. Because if, if that's truly for you the only problem you're seeing, then, then yeah, if they address that one, it sounds like we've got a slam dunk and I should really become a fairhead. Are there, are there hats or anything that they issue you? Like, is They're there a foil. secret handshake? We do have foil hats. You have to learn the secret handshake. No. <laughs> All right. Excellent. All right. Well, listen, we're getting close to the end of the show. I've got a, a couple of questions I'm going to fire your way. The first one I ask every guest, trademark of the show. We're going to actually catalog, speaking of fair and you know statistical analysis and such things, I'm actually cataloging everyone's answers to this one question. We're going to do a, a chart at the end of the year and show kind of like where are practitioners at. The question is this. What keeps you going in cybersecurity? What makes you get out of bed in the morning, jump into your shoes and say, I'm doing this again? Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's up there. It's got to be one of the common answers. But in the private sector, you know, my, my experience in working with my counterparts in the private sector, it's a lot of what's coming down the pike. What's the newest, greatest thing, both from the attack perspective and from the defense perspective. In government, 
we're seeing more of that, but it's a lot of how do we keep the plate spinning and how do we do it better? So I like the challenge of problem solving. I like the idea of like, okay, this is how we do it now. Can we do more with less? And that is less controls. Can we be better at what we're doing? Can we be more effective at what we're doing? And then I, I also like the challenge of educating not just my counterparts, but the user community, whether they're application developers or systems administrators, and watching the lights go, light bulbs go off in their head like, oh, that's a good point. So I enjoy that kind of a relationship with my counterparts and, and with IT and, and then also establishing those relationships with the business, like seeing the problem solved. So let me ask you this, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but the next question is, what are you looking forward to in cyber? Hmm. What's, what's coming over the horizon that, that you're like, oh, cool, when that gets here, life's going to be better? Honestly, I, I would say like normalizing of cybersecurity. Right? You've seen okay. some of the posts on LinkedIn where there's, you know, we're talking about making it a normal career progression. Because right now we're kind of in this pigeonhole compared to other things. Somebody goes to, to a trade school or college and maybe they get their A plus and they learn how to do some basic admin stuff and they can progress through that. But cybers, you know, we're the weird ones with the tinfoil hats on because we hide in our little rooms and do confidence intervals. But uh, <laughs> maybe or red, yellow, green. Right. But I would love to see the normalizing of cybersecurity and making it less of a burden to hire new talent. Right. So that we can get that kid out of high school or college that's just fired up. I don't have to worry about HR saying, oh, you need a master's degree and a CISSP and let's get more diversity in cyber. That that's what I'm looking for. I'm excited to see that. I'm excited for that one as well. And I, I, you know, it's crazy to me. We talk about a lack of talent in the industry and we talk about a lack of diversity in the industry. And then we turn around and write job descriptions exactly like you described, like <laughs> entry level position, master's degree required, plus CISSP, plus five years experience. Yeah. Wait a minute. Where, where, where's the entry level in this? <laughs> so I'm with you. I'm with you right there. Well, listen, Drew Brown. IT security manager at the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs> <laughs>